one sports movie that I've watched, there's a scene, it's getting towards the climactic moment, and the hero of the movie is sort of in a, in a, uh, a, a down moment. He's, he's being beaten by this opponent, and his trainer grabs him and brings him close to him and says, Why are we here? Why are we here? And he's bringing to his mind, what you know because you've watched the story, all of the personal motivation that led him to this moment. Why are we here? I think sometimes we can neglect that question and, and a renewal of it, a refreshing of it when it comes to marriage. Why are we here? Sometimes we sort of wake up and we just accept that we are here and we go about the basic habits of our day and our married life. We don't, we don't renew or refresh the question, why are we here? And sometimes when we don't do that, other reasons, other negative motives can start coming into play. We can start answering that question wrongly. It's bad enough when we don't renew the question of why are we here? Why am I married? Why am I married? Why am I married to you? What's the motive? Why are we here? What I want to do this morning, before we get into the, the roles of marriage or practices in marriage or behaviors, I want to get at why are we here? Why, why are we here in terms of God? God the Creator, God the Redeemer, God the Returning King. Why are we here in terms of those things? That should be shaping how we relate to our spouse this Wednesday evening. How we're planning for our spouse on their next birthday. How we're talking to them in the middle of a conflict. How we're thinking about their spiritual development. How we're processing the next job decision. How we're discussing our children with them and their fears and needs and desires for the upcoming year. Why we are here in this marriage in terms of God's creation, God's redemption, God's new creation. That should shape us. And we don't want to just limit the Bible to Ephesians 5. Because as valuable as that is, there's a lot, a lot of other verses and themes and ideas in the Scripture that could speak with a lot of revel relevance into some of those moments. If we neglect them, we'll be missing out on all of the fuel of those why questions that are answered. All right, so three, three motives that I want to uh, bring up to answer the why are we here question. All right, why are we here? First, the motive of creation. The motive... Of creation. We all know this. Genesis 1 makes it very clear for every human being. Uh, you did not make yourself. You didn't make yourself. <laughs> your spouse didn't make themselves. You didn't even make your marriage. Remember it says in the Psalms that He has made us. We are His. We are His people. The sheep of His pasture. In the Bible, creation implies ownership. It implies belonging. So, since God made you, you belong to Him. You are His creation. Your spouse is His creation. Your marriage is His creation. The motive of creation begins by saying, God made us for Himself. God made us for Himself. God made my spouse for himself. God made our marriage for himself. Very important to appreciate that the marriage institution itself was made by God, not just the individuals within it. That's the point when Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. We, we skip to the second part because we want to talk about that, but the first part is the foundation. 
what God joined together. So marriage was created by God. Your marriage was created. The fact that you're married was a God act. Now you and your attraction and your interest and your needs and your desires and your opportunity to meet this person and pursue them and win them or receive their affection so forth, that was the means God used. But the fact that you're married to this person and not that person is such a, an incredible orchestration of providence. Who your parents were, where you were born, what you happened to look like and not look like, where you happened to be at a particular time and place in the thousands of years of human history. God orchestrated all of that such that we can honestly say, God made my marriage. And since we can remember that creation is it's meant to define something. If you go back to that opening verse, that leads to the expectation that Adam and Eve and every subsequent couple were made for God. They belonged to Him. They were made for Him. Uh, you can remember in the New Testament where uh, it says, in Him we live and move and have our being. Our, our being exists because He causes it to exist. Our marriage exists because He causes it to exist. Our spouse exists because they are caused by God to exist. Every human being is God's personal creation. He created their being without advice or counsel from anyone else. He directs their steps according to His own wisdom, including their steps right up to the altar of marriage. In His divine will, He joins man and woman together in a holy covenant before Him, creating one union out of two individuals. God is the only one that can do that. We are incapable of this idea of 1 plus 1 equals 1. But God can do such a thing. This motive reminds us of the high value and privilege and treasure of both individuals and the union that God has put together. This is not the will of man or the craftsmanship of some lesser architect. This isn't a four-year-old drawing on a piece of paper. This is a master craftsman with perfect wisdom, pers perfect perspective of all things, creating this human being and this human being and all that they are, and then creating their union and all that it is. This is the ultimate architect designing the ultimate project. That's what you are, that's what your spouse is, that's what your marriage is. Now. Why we are here, we are here to reflect and acknowledge and honor that incredible background. So why are you here in a given moment of conflict with your spouse? Well, you're here because God made you in this moment for himself. God did that. You are a personal, individual project of God to reveal His own wisdom and glory. That's why you are here. So when you're sitting there with your husband or wife and you're having a conversation and it's not going very well, why we are here, one of the motives is the motive of creation. I am here. The reason I'm here. I, I'm not here primarily as a pragmatic function of social benefit that it's good for people to be together and there's tax benefits and it's good for the social structure of the country. No, I, I'm here. I'm here in this moment, sitting in two chairs, having a somewhat tense conversation. What's the motive of how I should act right now? 
Well, the first motive is God made me and God made her and God made us. And we were made for his pleasure and glory. That's what this is about. It's not primarily about my convenience or my comfort or my preferences or a relatively smooth life or uh, because we, we're supposed to get along or we're supposed to benefit each other in particular ways. We're made by God and for His glory because He created us. The motive of creation. I was made by someone for a purpose. My marriage was made by someone for a purpose, namely Himself. All that God makes... He makes for Himself. Your marriage was not made primarily for you. It wasn't made primarily for yourself. It wasn't made by you. Come on in. It wasn't made by yourself. That's not why it was made. It was made by God for God. Crucially, crucially important. This is the motive of creation. Now you can see what I'm saying. I don't know about you. I, I don't know how often I, I think about this in the in and out of my married life. I'm not sure I'm thinking, when I think about the next week in my relationship with my spouse, God made me and made her and made us for himself and for his glory. That's why we were made. I'm not, I'm not thinking about it that way. I'm thinking, oh, we got busyness and actions and works and schedules. And, but I'm not coming out of the day-to-day -day life and thinking, this is why we were made. God, we have a purpose. We have a calling. We have a privilege. God designed us for this. For our romance and our affection and our encouragement and our warning and our correction and our, our tenderness and our service of one another. It's all God's craftsmanship on display. If you, if you imagine, for example, one of those trade shows, you know, somewhere, imagine like a tool trade show where, where someone is demonstrating their project and they want to show it in its best light. You wouldn't go to a trade show and find a guy using a drill to hammer something in. Or just sitting there and, and, and watching people walk by and neglecting all those tools in the chest because, yeah, it's nice to chat with people. And, and No, the point of it being there is to demonstrate, look what it can do. That's the purpose of you being. That's the purpose of your spouse being. That's the purpose of your marriage being. It's, it's not about social convenience or connectivity or, or the fabric of society. It's, it's about God's purpose. God designed you as a husband. To be a certain way towards your wife. God designed you as a wife to be a certain way towards your husband. God designed your marriage to display his creative brilliance. It's a motive. It's a motive of creation. Second motive I want to talk about. The motive of redemption. The motive of redemption. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter and, and just glance at this passage. There's, there's countless passages that talk like this. But, but Peter, in that passage of 1 Peter, he, he talks about how we were purchased not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And as you follow the logic there, in, at the end of chapter 1, what Peter is saying is, when we were purchased this way, and in light of that, we have a certain way we should live. We were purchased. There was a price tag on us. God came to a garage sale, found something worthless, and gave his blood to save it. That's the logic of the New Testament. He found something that was atrociously evil in the sight of heaven, though originally valuable, but having inflicted incredible self-damage to itself through sin, 
And he chose to purchase it at incredible cost to himself and then restore it to its original purpose. That's God. God is the original fixer-upper. God takes what is intended for great things, has been destroyed to a place of ultimate decay and atrocity, and then restore it to better than it would have been originally, at great personal cost. So what's the motive of redemption for marriage? Your spouse, your Christian, I'm speaking of Christian marriages here, okay? But your Christian spouse, they were purchased by the blood of God the Son. They are a personal project, the price tag of which is beyond human calculation. And the new creation of which is God's own personal goal. So when you look at your wife, here's why I think it's unhelpful when we limit our thinking about marriage only to, say, like an Ephesians 5 passage. When you think about your wife, if you're a husband, your husband, if you're a wife, you are thinking of them as someone that Jesus Christ died to redeem and rescue, to purchase out of slavery and the future of wrath and judgment, to bring into fellowship with himself and to set on a trajectory of holiness and purity before him. That is who you are on date night with. Now, what does that motivate you to do? Well, at, at the least, it motivates you to count that moment a privilege. At the very least, when this person uh, leaves something out on the floor, and your reaction is to roll your eyes again, because once again, I can't believe I have to clean up, it motivates you to, at the very least, remember, the person I am talking about was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do they have a long way to go? Well, of course they do. But where they have come is much farther than how far they have to go. It shapes maybe not the content exactly of what you have to say in a moment of conflict, but it certainly would shape the affection you would say it with, the privilege that you get to participate with God in this incredible project called your spouse. They, they are a masterpiece in the making, signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus. They are a new creation made by the death of God the Son on the cross and made alive again by His resurrection. This is your spouse. That motive changes how you greet them in the morning. It, it changes how you help them process a decision that they're making. Related to their extended family. It, it pro changes how you process, how you encourage them in the faith. It changes whether or not you spend all of your time uh, just relaxing with them, or whether you help them grow towards godliness, whether they help you grow towards godliness. This isn't just a human being that is just living life in the best way they can, kind of making it through. We share some hobbies. I happen to like, you know, television, and, and she likes television, so we watch television together, or he likes camping, and I like camping, and so we like camping together, or he likes food, and I like food. And, no, this isn't shared hobbies, and we, we kind of make it work. No, this is God's blood-bought person. They, their, their, their past is a glorious display of the grace of God. That motivates how you relate to them. 
Isn't it normal in marriage, as time progresses, we become more aware of the ordinariness and the weakness of our spouse, and less of their extraordinariness and their value and privilege. Isn't that the case? Normally when you get married, you're very aware of what makes them special to you, and then over the years, you become aware of what makes them somewhat ordinary, and perhaps annoying, and perhaps difficult, and their sluggishness of change can become a burden and a, a, a challenge. Isn't that, that's the normal progression of married life. You become very aware of how difficult it is to live with a person who's frankly kind of like you. You become aware of that, don't you? You become aware of, of like, wow, it's annoying that people are selfish. And then you're aware I'm selfish too, but I mostly am just aware of how annoying their selfishness is. You become aware of their weaknesses. You become aware of their, of their expressions of bitterness or how quick they are to judge you or how they never seem to see the good I do. They always see the negative things I do. They, they always want to relax. They never want to uh, have spiritual fellowship together. They, they're interested in, in these ideas for our future. They don't seem to care about my ideas for the future. You become very aware of those aspects of life that are negative or annoying or the other option is you just kind of decelerate into a practical partnership without a lot of growth or difficult conversations. That's the other thing that can happen. You sort of coexist. You're kind, you're nice, you have your lives, and it's more pleasant to be together than apart, but you just sort of coexist. What motive is lacking when marriage becomes that? You kind of reach an equilibrium, status quo. You don't push me to change or grow too much. I don't push you to change or grow too much. We do a few things that you like. We do a few things that I like. I sacrifice a little bit. You sacrifice a little bit. We've kind of reached a nice equilibrium. We don't fight too much or too often. You know, we, we don't have too many exciting memories, but we, we kind of coexist together. What, what is that? What, what is happening there? Well, one of the motives that is missing is the motive of the privilege of redemption. Who this is. That motivates us to want them to become what God has made them to be and to be towards them what God has made me to be, what God has redeemed me to be. I'm called to be more than a better than average husband. I'm called to be a blood-bought masterpiece of grace toward my wife. She's called to be more than a better-than-average wife. She's called to be a blood-bought masterpiece of grace towards me. It is devaluing my wife to accept her spiritual plateau. It is devaluing a husband for a wife to accept his spiritual plateau. They are not supposed to be a better than average member of the Round Rock Williamson County community. They are supposed to be a blood-bought project of the Lord Jesus Christ purchased by his blood and headed towards heaven. Now that is a motive that shapes how you think about the next date night, the next a moment of conversation you have together, their areas of sin, their areas of growth, the celebration that should ensue when you see God's grace in their life, because this is what they are and it's what you are. The, the marriage of two Christians should be two blood-bought sinners celebrating the ongoing project of God's grace in their life. This is not a practical thing. It is firstly a spiritual 
journey where two Christians have partnered and covenanted together to celebrate the grace of God purchased by the blood of Jesus flowing from them and toward each other. Crucial question, we think about the motive, the motive of redemption in marriage. We, we think about this idea, am I acting like a blood-bought project of grace? towards my spouse? Am I viewing them as a blood-bought project of grace, secured by the love of God, and intended by God to display the recreation that He has implanted within them? Often, often in marriage, we, we accept status quo. We must not do that. The honor and intentions of God are at stake. I I, I do think there are some spouses, both husbands and wives, who dislike difficult conversations and that sometimes this motive is lacking because they'd rather a superficially peaceful marriage than to press towards God's intention, God's purpose. Spiritual laziness can kind of set in. Well, you're not so bad, and I'm not so bad, and we're not so bad. But we weren't made for not so bad. We weren't purchased for not so bad. Bart said a great illustration a couple weeks ago in his message, you know, God doesn't have half-finished projects in a closet in heaven. It's also true that God doesn't start any low-level projects. He only starts glorious ones. Every Christian and the Christian that you're married to was purchased at the highest price. They have a, a purpose from God that you are supposed to display in your own life and you're supposed to call them to display as well. The motive of redemption. Final motive, the motive of eternity. The scriptures don't just point us to the past or the present in our creation and redemption for our motives. They point us to the future. Why are we here? It's worth, insert that question in your next conversation with your spouse. And any one of these motives might motivate you in that moment. Why am I here? What's my reason? What's my purpose? What's my goal for being here? And one of those motives is the motive of eternity. I'm here to prepare to meet the returning king. Why am I here? What's my purpose in the middle of this middle of the night, unexpected conversation with a spouse who can't sleep? Why am I here? To help prepare her and to prepare myself to meet the returning king. Why am I here in the middle of this argument that now we find ourselves in on Wednesday evening talking about why you haven't planned a vacation and why I always have to do everything for you? Why am I here? We are here to prepare for the coming king. I am here to help them prepare for the coming king. They are here to help me prepare for the coming king. Now that changes how you receive observations from your spouse. 
Maybe they didn't say it right. Maybe they were angry. Maybe they were self-righteous. Maybe they were bitter. Maybe they've said it 900 times in a week. But remembering that you are preparing for the coming king causes you to be a little less concerned about how they're bringing it and the hypocrisy of bringing it and more concerned about whether what they're bringing is true and necessary because you're preparing for the coming king. That motive changes whether you are particularly concerned about whether they're aware that they've done this plenty of times too. And much more concerned about the value of the kernel of truth that you know and they know is accurate about what they're saying. It changes, it shapes how you process that conversation. It's not nearly as much about being right or proving that I'm 60 and you're 40 than it is about benefiting from whatever benefit you can derive from this sinner preparing to meet the returning king, helping this sinner preparing to meet the returning king. It changes how you would think about celebrating the grace of God in their life because you know you want to help them understand that the most exciting thing about them is what God is doing in their life. Why? Because we're preparing for the coming king. And we need to learn how to celebrate what he's doing so that heaven doesn't seem a strange and unfamiliar place. It's been said by countless pastors who have made this point over the years, commentators and, and stuff, they'll, they'll throw this in, that heaven should be a familiar place to Christians because they should have been enacting the realities of heaven in their daily lives. It should not be an unfamiliar place. In heaven, grace is celebrated, the glory of the king is celebrated, the progress of holiness is celebrated. Those are the things that are celebrated in heaven. And when we get to heaven, when the king returns and takes us there, that should not seem like a totally uh, you know, interrupted pattern of our current life. It shouldn't seem like, wow, this is so different than my life back home. Your spouse should not say, it's nothing like what it was like being married to you in heaven. <laughs> that shouldn't be what your spouse should say. They should say we were both weak and we were imperfect. But I remember when I get to heaven, what did we do in our married life? We celebrated the grace of God. We rejoiced in salvation. We worshiped God together. We, we, we loved each other in the faith. Those same values, yes, in an imperfect fallen world here and in a perfect and unfallen world there, yes. But, but the same kernel, the same values should be present. It shouldn't be like our lives here are pragmatic and utilitarian and selfish, selfishly driven and we both scratch each other's backs on occasion. And then we get to heaven and it's like, wow, this is all about God. That's really different than our married life was. No, it should be like, this is exactly what our married life was like. It was full of love and affection and the, the abundance of joy and salvation. It was full of, of celebrating how God has worked in our lives. It should be about those things. You understand how this would work into your next conversation with your spouse? Wait, what, what am I doing right now? Well, we're talking about our next car purchase. Yes, but, but why? Why? Well, be, because we're preparing for heaven. How does that shape this conversation? How does it shape how I speak in this conversation? How does it shape how I talk to my spouse about what God has provided for us in this conversation? How does it shape how we think about our budget? How does it shape how we think about our, our vacation days and our weekends and our priorities and our children and our, our love for each other and our affection and our encouragement? Well, it shapes it a lot because the Bible seems to indicate every day is a day 
of preparing for the Lord's return. There is no last-minute preparation for Jesus. There's no cramming for his return. The point is, what you are doing today indicates whether you are waiting for him or not. So every date night is a date night in which you should be very comfortable if the Lord returns. Every conversation should be a conversation in which you are very comfortable if the Lord returns. What does that mean? Well, it means that we should be running a race to apologize first after we've had a fight. Why? Because we want to be the one who's racing to apologize because the Lord might return. We want to try to avoid being in in unreconciled conflict with our spouse, and then the Lord returns, and well, we're not going to be forgiven of that. Of course we will be. But shouldn't our desire be that He returns after we've been reconciled? And doesn't that motivate us to be the one racing to humble ourselves rather than insist that they do it first? Don't we want the Lord to find us serving sacrificially, whether or not they've served us sacrificially recently? Don't we want the Lord to find us pursuing romance the way we're meant to pursue it in peace, the way we're meant to pursue it in love? Well, yes. Why? What's the motive? Because the Lord is returning. And Jesus describes the return of the Lord in terms of people who are either waiting or procrastinating. Every moment of marriage is a waiting or a procrastinating moment. See how that would, it, it shapes, you see, I'm less, much less concerned about your reputation and fairness and whether you respect me enough, you know, or whether you appreciate me enough. And, you know, th- these things are the kinds of things that people who have no future are concerned about. Christians are concerned about the coming king. And when he comes, nobody's going to be thinking, well, you know, I've been wanting to talk to him about you because you don't respect me enough. No, nobody's, nobody's having that conversation. Lord, nobody wants to be Martha when the Lord returns. Would you make her come and serve me? Good thing you came because we need somebody to mediate. No, no, a Christian is, it wants to be ready. He wants to, the Lord to find him in the ordinary pattern of, of love and encouragement and servant-heartedness and humility and, 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 and boldness in helping this fellow preparer prepare. You don't, you don't want to find the, the husband who's neglected the spiritual preparation of his wife. I don't want the Lord to find me on that day saying, I gave you this fellow Christian. You're supposed to be the primary one helping them prepare for me. You didn't do anything like that. You never spoke to them about my word. You know, recently, when's the last time you were encouraging them in the faith or helping them grow or praying for them? You're all concerned about your practical development in your 401k. and You, you never helped them prepare for me. What were you doing all these years? No, I, I, I don't want that conversation. Was it really more important that you worked out your every other aspect of your life perfectly and you didn't prepare your spouse for my return? You didn't let them prepare you? You didn't help them anticipate heaven in your regular life together? Marriage is about two Christians who have the primary task, more than any other person, of preparing each other for the return of the King. Each week should look like a week of preparation, from husband to wife, from wife to husband. Wives, your husband needs you to help him prepare for the return of the King. A wife who never speaks to her husband in ways that are intended to help him prepare is not doing her job. And a husband that says, well, 
boy, it's awkward when we talk about preparation things spiritually, so I'd rather not talk about that. It's not doing his job. We're called to prepare each other for the return of the king. That is our calling. That's the most important thing that's going to happen this next week. That should be the big rock in the schedule. The motive of creation, the motive of redemption, the motive of eternity. At any given moment, any of those motives might shape how you respond to this moment. This is the why I'm here. I'm here because God made me for himself to bring him glory. I'm here because God purchased me to live a life of holiness and joy before him. I'm here because the king is returning and we're preparing for that day. That's the why. That's why I'll make dinner for you uh, this evening. That's why I really have to insist that we have this difficult spiritual conversation. That's why I'll humble myself first when I come to you in this conflict. That's why I'll receive your correction, even if it's hypocritical. That's why I will plan for our spiritual progress and devotional life or prayer or conversation or whatever it is together. That's why we do these things. He made us, He redeemed us, and He's returning for us. That's the why. Why are we here? Renewing the motives, the most important motives, of marriage shape how we relate to ourselves and to our spouse in this union that God has made. Let me encourage us. Renew and refresh these motives of marriage. You can see why. Is Ephesians 5 fantastic? Yes, it is. But, but the Bible is our motive for marriage. Creation, recreation, return. The Bible motivates, as a Christian, how I relate to my spouse. This is what we are called to do. This is the platform above all platforms of our Christianity. Our married life. This is the proving ground of all that God has made and remade us for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself and all my brothers and sisters. Lord, we, we want to be motivated by the myriad of motives you've given us, Lord, and even just these three categories. We pray that you, Lord Jesus, please, would bring these to our mind. Lord, if we've been neglecting these motives, Lord, would you just bring them roaring back into our hearts? Lord, wherever there's been more selfish motives or pragmatic motives, Lord, just, just replace those with these heavenly motives, Lord, these God-centered motives. Let, let us think as people who believe you're the start and the middle and the end of everything. Help us to do that, Lord Jesus, I pray. In your name, amen.